partner with him. And so just a little bit of context for, for this announcement. Don't worry, like anytime pastors like I have an announcement, people are like, ah! like it's really good. Uh, you, you probably know for several years, uh, Peter Young led our small groups and did an amazing job with that. He hasn't been doing that for about a year and a half. And that's fallen into my portfolio, which just means it's more to do. And I've been doing that uh, with some incredible help from Hannah Bastian, thank you, and Trisha Prieto, uh, who did a great job assisting me in that. But recognizing the whole time that it, it shouldn't stay in my portfolio. I have a passion for disciple making. I think I'm good at it. But you know how you just have too much stuff that you can't focus on. And so uh, in that time, we've been looking and recognize the need for somebody to be, to hold that, you know, disciple-making part of our portfolio. And that, now, that being said, like, when we bring people onto the church, whether it's hired or volunteered, we don't do that based on just the needs of the church or their giftings or ability. We primarily do that because we are looking for people that are mission-aligned, where we're going in the same direction, and we're relationally aligned, people that we know, we know their character. And so um, we've been... Uh, I've been looking, and we have, I found somebody uh, who shares the passion that we have at New Covenant for disciple-making, the passion that we have for presence. It's somebody that I've known for, for quite a while, uh, but it's not necessarily somebody that's known to all of us. Well, you, you might have heard uh, of this person. So I want to announce this morning that uh, starting March 1st, the first week of March, Joel and Emily Ruddy, and you, the name might sound familiar to you, uh, his dad was at the Tabernacle, and his brother uh, is married to Aaron uh, Arneth, who is now Aaron Ruddy, and they pastor in um, Rochester at Elam Gospel Church. Anyways, Joel has been on staff at Northgate with his father-in-law, uh, John Hasselbeck, um, and he's going to transition to this team uh, starting in a few weeks. We just want to give you a heads up for that so that when you see him around, you can welcome him in. His first week with us, he's going to be traveling with me, so you won't see him on that Sunday. Uh, so about a month from now, on the 14th of March, will be his first Sunday in the house, and I just want to encourage you to get to know him. Uh, we have built relationship over the last, he served for nine years at Northgate 2 on staff. Um, he's going to primarily have discipleship in his portfolio as well as some other stuff as well. Um, but I'm super excited about it because you know how you have those relationships with people sometimes where you just kind of like mind meld and click on some things? And that has happened for a long time and it's been great to be his friend and to um, work together with him just in general, but I think it'll be fun to be here. But we've, we haven't done this. Like my my general disposition for bringing people on is to bring people from in-house. Now we're rejoicing that this is, like we don't send resumes out all over the country and interview people for two hours and go, okay God, what are you saying? Um, it's really nice to be able to do that with somebody that you've walked with for a while. But I want you to feel uh, like you have some heads up to where this is going and you can just welcome them in and find out what, what passions they have and what, what God's placed in them and look at what it would look like to integrate them into a new covenant family. Does that sound good? If you have any questions about that, let me know. Sound good? Great. Um, so when Lori and I went to close on our first house in Virginia, uh, I realized that the morning that we were supposed to close, that I couldn't find the bank check that was going to cover closing costs, which I, if you've ever closed on a house, you know is usually a fairly large check. It was the largest check I'd ever had in my hands. And we searched the entire apartment. It wasn't a huge apartment, but we searched the entire thing, could not find it, and then I realized it must have gotten into the garbage. Not necessarily a big deal, just go through the garbage and find it, right? It's messy, it's not ideal, but here's the problem. We lived in an apartment complex that had a very large trash compactor, and I went and I, I could see the bags in the trash compactor, and I could see the check 
through the bag in the trash compactor. But I was not going into the trash compactor because I wanted to actually have a body that could go to the closing and enjoy the house we were about to move into. So I went from visions of like, hey, we're going to move into our new house today and what this life is looking like to like, I don't know how we're going to do this because I don't have enough money in my bank account to cover another ca- like bank check. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I couldn't just write two of those. I could write one, we'd be all right, but I couldn't write two. And so uh, we were very blessed that we had a, a good relationship with our bank. Th- this bank got bought out. They, who bought them out finally? Wells Fargo. It was Wachovia Bank. Have you ever have dealings with Wachovia Bank? I, they were pretty large, but they, like, they were so good to us. So good to us. I called them up, and I'm, I'm sure they had a little chuckle, like, I don't know what to do. They're like, it's all right. We'll cancel the check. We'll write another one. I just had this, like, this intense thing in me that like, I wanted to like, follow through with my word. And here's the problem. At that time, houses were selling for like 20000 more than when, we had, when our offer would, was put down. So like, a couple months later, we go to close, and if we had lost that deal, we would have had to pay $20,000 more for a similar house. And so I, I really wanted to close, and I really wanted to get it right. Um, have you ever closed on a house? Like, how many times do you have to sign your, sign your name away? I, and I, and I kind of get that. I understand that. Like, this is a big deal. This is a lot of money. This is where we're going to live, all that kind of stuff. But here's the thing. I recently took my daughter to the orthodontist for an ortho check. An ortho check just simply is, does the retainer fit? I mean, it's like in and out. It's not a big deal. Ten minutes maximum. And when I walked in to do this, I had to sign so many papers just for an ortho check, for her and for me and this form and that form. Like, not, we're going to start the orthodontic process and I'm going to pay as much as a mortgage for that process with her. This was just a simple ortho check. Like, it's all taken care of. You know, you have our insurance, you're billing us, like the whole deal. This was just to have her, her, her retainer looked at. And I'm thinking, why am I signing my name to so many things? Like, am I signing my life away? Are you asking me for stuff that doesn't have anything to do with ortho? See, for for people of integrity, signing our name means something. And often it's not just about a contract or what we're going to do, but it's really a reflection of who we are. Like what we promise to do, what our word is. Another way to say contract is to say covenant. We're going to talk about covenant, Lord willing, over the next few weeks. We're going to do a series on covenant, on the great covenants of Scripture. And we need to understand that covenant is not just a contract. It's greater than that. In in fact, in Scripture, when people would make covenant or agreements with one another, they didn't sign their names. Often, uh, the word covenant, and we'll see this as we look at some of the covenants, means to cut They would cut a covenant, and it had to do with blood and with sacrifice, and it was a lot bigger than just like, hey, you know, are you here for an ortho check? Just sign your name here and tell us you won't sue us later. We're going to discover that a a, a covenant is so much more than a a contract or a handshake or words, and there's all different types of covenants. You know, there's, there's unilateral covenants. Your will is a unilateral covenant. Nobody else gets to tell you what to do with that. This is what I've decided is going to happen, and I'm just going to say it. 
There's bilateral covenants. Those are things, but, you know, agreements between two people. There's, there's obligatory covenants where two equals come together. And there's promissory covenants. That's where there's like a Lord and a vassal. And the Lord makes promises and the vassal gets rewarded for obedience to those promises. And so we're going to look at these covenants. And as we do, we need to understand the elements of biblical covenant will be in almost every one of them. There's usually some kind of promise made by God. There's usually commandments or agreements that God gives to the people that he's making covenant with. There's some type of sign of a covenant. We'll see that over time as well. There's blessings and curses and some type of sacrifice that seals that covenant, some type of ceremony. And here are some of the themes that we're going to see as we travel through covenant, just some big ideas that that we're going to capture. The first is this, that God's a covenant-making God. God operates in covenant with his people. It's not just like he set the world ablaze or set it, you know, put it into motion and just left people alone to themselves. He interacts with human beings. And we're going to look at these, as we look at these great covenants in Scripture, we're going to see a, a few things about God, the covenant-making God. God's always the initiator of covenant. God breaks in. God's, God, God has a plan and a purpose and a will in doing, doing covenant with us. And his covenants display what matters most to him starting with his people. And in fact, he's made a covenant with us is what we're going to discover over time. And not only is God a covenant-making God, but here's the really incredible part. He's a covenant-keeping God. Have you ever broken a contract, either intentionally or unintentionally? You all are just people of your word. Do you ever have a car repossessed? That's, yeah, right? Or, um, well, we won't go there. But, as human beings, we are apt to break covenant. In fact, Jesus addressed a bunch of people that were really good at making covenants. He, he, was, he was talking to them about how they make their oaths. And they would swear by heaven, they would swear by the temple, they would swear by their families, because there were hierarchies of their promises. Like, if I swear by the temple, I can't really break it, but if I swear by my parents, you might think like, that I'm serious, but I could break that and not be in trouble with God. And Jesus was like, guys, stop. We just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Like, mean what you say. Because as human beings, our nature often is to figure out ways to get out of a contract or a covenant. Right? Like, I read it because I want to know what I'm promising to do, but I also want to know how I can break it. That's not how God looks at covenant. God is a covenant-keeping God. He always keeps his end of his covenant. We're going to understand how God keeps his covenant with his people even when we don't. Even when we break covenant with him, he is continually purposing himself to see his end worked out in our lives. Why? Because he's a covenant-keeping God and a covenant-making God because he knows that covenant is good for us. He wants what's best for us and for his people. So let's start with the very first covenant. The first covenant is contained in Genesis chapter 1. It's a covenant with mankind that he makes with Adam and Eve. Read with me in Genesis 1, and we have a bunch of scripture to kind of go through. I, I don't, I'm not as comfortable with those types of sermons, so you, we're going to be flipping all around. Just take a breath. We'll get through it. It'll be really good. It's going to set some ideas up. I, I, I like getting like one scripture and just kind of breaking it apart. We're going to talk about a bunch of scriptures this morning, starting in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says this, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. 
So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. This is where we see this, this covenant happening in his mind and then in actuality. He blessed them. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, govern it, reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And then skip to chapter 2, verse 15, because it's part of it as well. The Lord God placed man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. This was a covenant of authority. Listen to some of the words that God had. He said, let us make man in our image to be like us and to reign over. And they said, he blessed them. He said, fill the earth, govern it, and reign over it. He says, I have given you. And then he says in Genesis 2.15, he says those two things. He says, he placed a man in the Garden of Eden to tend and to watch over it. So in other words, he's saying, listen, you're going to govern and rule over and fill the whole earth. He's basically saying, here's my authority to you in the earth. And when he says, I'm going to put you in the garden, it's kind of like we're going to start here, and his intention was, it for, was for it to expand. When he says tend the garden, that, that word tend is not like learn how to be a gardener or like learn how to till the soil. He literally said, bring the soil under subjection. Bring the earth under subjection. How many of you know when God made the earth, he, had, he has control over it, he has authority over it, right? And yet he makes man and extends his authority in the earth in us and through us. When he says watch over, he says protect. Both bringing to subjection and protecting are elements of authority. That's what God was doing. So understand this. As we look at the very first covenant, the word covenant is not mentioned until you get to Noah. And so some people say, well, is this really one of the covenants of God? We have elements of covenant here, but if you're really worried about it, Hosea chapter 6, verse 7 says this, but like Adam, this is God speaking to his people, like Adam, you broke my covenant and betrayed my trust. God understood this as a covenant. That's what he was giving to us. And in it, he bound himself to us to see his kingdom worked out. Now, I don't know about you, but that blows my mind. Why would God choose you and me? Like, you're all pretty cool people. Some of you are good looking. Some of you are talented. Some of you are both. You can decide to be in both camps. Just when you think about what I think about you, just say, Pastor Josh thinks I'm good looking and talented, all right? And just settle that. But as good looking and as talented as we are, like, we can't be trusted with the weight of this. What, like, what was God thinking? When he, he said, I'm going to extend my rulership in the earth through us. Like anybody, like, give me the rulership of the earth. You're like, there are a few people throughout history that are like, yep, want it. We usually find those people in jail or dead, right? But when we really take a look at it, we don't have the capacity to do what God's asked us to do apart from God, and that's the truth. But he said, with me, and in me, I'm going to extend my authority into the earth through you. But here's the problem. We messed it up. Tony Evans wrote in his book, Kingdom Disciples, God provided a house called Eden for Adam and Eve to oversee and to manage. They didn't own it, but they were given the freedom to enjoy it, to use it, and to maximize it. In fact, they were given great freedom with only one restriction, not to eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. But because Satan wanted to make himself the owner, 
He got Adam to intentionally rebel against God. Keep in mind, Scripture tells us that Eve was deceived, but Adam went into his sin with his eyes wide open. And because of his rebellion against God, the crown that God had placed on him was removed. And Adam turned over rulership of the earth to the devil. And this changed everything. There was no longer the blessing of authority. There was no longer a blessing of the earth cooperating with Adam and with Eve in the extension of the kingdom. Because the transfer of authority and of ownership went from the Lord to Adam, right? He didn't own it, but he had authority over it. And that authority transfer was given to the devil. And we see the effects of that all throughout the Old Testament. See, the truth is this. There is too much division even in the church of God over who's the boss. We love to build our own kingdoms, don't we? We love to have authority, and we're like, no, we don't. Yeah, we do. We really do. We want control. And when we build our own kingdoms, he is not king. And he can't and won't help us build that kingdom because it's not his. But here's the thing. God has a redemptive answer for us jacking it up. He always does. In fact, I heard this statement, and I think it's just so powerful. If we don't, when it comes to sin or anything that we face, any problem that we face in our lives, if we don't have a redemptive answer, we don't have God's answer. Thanks, Mike. (laughs) I didn't come up with it, so I'll repeat it. It's really good. When it comes to sin or any other thing that we face in our lives, if we don't have a redemptive answer, we don't have God's answer. Because God's answer to sin, to brokenness, is always redemptive. And so when we don't have that, right, then we need to stop and say, God, what does it look like? Because he has an answer. And he had an answer for Adam and Eve. He had an answer for you and me. And this is what the answer was. In Genesis 3.15, he's pronouncing judgment upon Adam and upon Eve and upon the serpent, the devil who tempted Adam and Eve and who now had authority. Here's what he said. Verse 15, And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now that's not just saying, hey, like women aren't going to like snakes anymore. And they're going to bite you on your feet and you're going to crush their heads. This was literally the first pronouncement of the gospel. If you want like a theological term, it was the proto-evangelum. It was the very first time that God says, here's the answer. Here's the good news. When you have jacked it up, here's what I'm going to do about it. Because when he's saying to the, to the woman and to the snake, you're going to bite her heel. It's like you're going to come after her. You're going to continue to try to attack her. But she, she is going, or the offspring of her is going to crush your head. He was saying the authority, because headship is authority, is going to be removed from you by my plan, by the offspring of a woman. And he did that in Jesus Christ. But in between that moment and when Christ came, it was a war on, his, on the seed of a woman. Satan understood that the plan was for redemption to come through Eve, through Adam and Eve, through human beings. And so he was constantly at war with the seed of, God, of human beings. He did it with Cain and Abel, right? Two, the two kids first born to Adam and Eve. He said, I got a great plan. I know how I'm going to mess it up for them. I'm going to make it so that one of them's dead, 
right? How I many you know redemption can't come through unless you're God in the flesh, can't come through a dead person, right? And he said, and I'm going to take the other one and I'm going to divorce him from the plan and the purpose of God. And he accomplished that. He got one to get really upset about his identity. God, he wasn't, his sacrifice was not accepted by God. And he's like, God, you don't like my identity and you, I find my identity in what I do because how many of us know we do that as human beings? And you don't like it and so I'm going to be mad at you. And so he killed his brother. He was so mad. His brother was dead. The seed was not on the earth anymore. And, the other, and Cain found himself divorced from the presence of God. And Satan thought he won. And yet God had a redemptive answer. And the redemptive answer was why we celebrate Valentine's Day. It was sex. That was supposed to be like, ha You're like, where are you going, Pastor Josh? <laughs> Bible says Adam and Eve got together and had sex. How many of you know where babies come from? <laughs> Guys, this is like really good stuff. <laughs> when your wife's having a bad day, babe, I know the redemptive answer. She's like, yep, it's a back rub. But, but you understand, like God had a redemptive answer and a purpose. God would not be stopped in bringing about, through the seed of a woman, his redemption in the earth. It continued with Noah. It continued with the people of God being brought into slavery and, and the enemy trying to destroy them as they went into the promised land. All throughout scripture, you see the, the, the enemy of our souls, not just coming after our souls, but coming after our bodies as well. It's a war on the seed. It was the same pattern even up to Jesus. What did the enemy try to do to Jesus? Tried to wipe him out. In fact, every baby boy born in Bethlehem was killed because the enemy was after, was after the seed of the woman. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's not looking out for you and me. He makes us think that we're going to have this fulfilled life by entering into his kingdom, authority, and domain. And it always brings death and destruction because he is looking to bring death and destruction to the people who God has intended to bring his kingdom, extension of authority, into the earth. That was God's covenant with people, and he's still working that covenant. Jesus came as a human being to redeem the humans that messed it up and to redeem the authority upon the earth and to carry out his plan and to give that authority to us. Let's look at it. We're going to go through a bunch of scripture. The authority of God was reclaimed in Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, 19 through 23. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. It's the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. And now he is, listen, far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but in the world to come. And catch this, God has put all things under the authority of Christ and made him head over all things, which is great. But check out the, the last line, for the benefit of the church. What God did in Jesus Christ was to raise him up to the place of authority, to redeem back that authority. He placed him in that place of authority. He is the lamb slain from the foundations of the earth. He is worthy to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And yet, why? For the benefit of his church. Because God is building a church. He has called the people amongst, him, amongst, amongst us in the world to demonstrate and to see his kingdom expand. This authority that he has has a benefit for us. 
In fact, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, it says this, Jesus was uh, crucified, he rose from the dead, he's with his disciples, and he came to them, he said, in case you missed it, in case, you know, Ephesians is going to be written a, a little while later, but I want you to understand this as I'm about to go, he says this, all authority has been given to me, all authority in heaven and on earth. How many of you know what all authority means? All of it. God is fulfilling his plan through the seed of a woman in Jesus Christ to restore authority back into the earth. And he says, therefore, it's not like Jesus is like, hey, check me out, I'm awesome. He says, this is what has happened. This is what, where we exist in the reality of heaven and earth. And here's what it means to you. It's for the benefit of the church, therefore. The therefore is therefore something. And it's for us to do what he's called us to do. That's to make disciples and extend his kingdom throughout the earth. I want you to just check out, really, this is just cool, the things that he is supreme over. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed long before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. And through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on the earth. And he made the things we can see and the things we can't see such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. So Christ is also the head of the church. Do you see the shift there? All of creation, and then he's like, hey, and listen, understand this. He's the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is the first in everything. Let me know when you're the first, you're the boss. He is the first and supreme in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him God reconciled everything to himself and he made peace with everything and on heaven and on earth by the means of Christ's blood on the cross. All of the curse of sin, all the authority to carry out the goodness of God, to to continue in that extension of his kingdom that was given to Adam and Eve was redeemed and bought back and he made peace with us. And with everything, we have the ability to do this because of what Christ did. Because he not only did it for himself, but he transferred us under his authority. Colossians 1, 13 through 14. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Do you see how that verse like sums up the transition back into the kingdom of God? He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, and transferred us into the kingdom of his son, lordship. And he has purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. So here's the amazing thing. He has been given all authority. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. But Ephesians 2, 6 says this, for he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. The scriptures around that, the context of that is, why did he do that? Why did he put us in a place of authority with him? How many of you know being seated on a throne is a place of authority? And he's there, and we haven't gotten there because of anything we've done. He's done it because he's kind. He's done it because he's merciful. He's done it because he loves us. He's done it because he wants to be generous, and he wants to point for all future generations, Scripture says, to what he did in seating us with Christ. In other words, he took the curse that was for generations... And he flipped it on its head. 
And he put us in a place where he can point to us for all future generations and say, no, this is how it is now. This is how I have redeemed my people. This is how I've transferred them from the authority of darkness into the authority of light. This is how I've forgiven their sins and I've taken the curse that was over their lives and the sin nature and I have given them opportunity to walk free of that. Jesus came in the flesh and is currently seated at the right hand of the Father to fulfill God's covenant to us that he made in the very beginning. And it's a covenant of authority. And how does he extend his authority now? He has it all, but how does he extend it practically in the earth? Because how many of you know he had it when he created the earth? He had it when he gave it to Adam and Eve and to human beings. He had all that authority, but he was still saying, let's extend it. I want to extend it through you. How does he do that? He does it through us. It says in Ephesians 1.23, and the church is his body. Made full and complete by Christ, who fills all things everywhere with himself. With himself. His authority is extended in the earth by our union with him, and as we are made full and complete in him, and bring his kingdom wherever we go. So, how do we live this covenant life that he's called us to? How do we do this? Hebrews chapter six. Sorry, verse, chapter 8, verse 6 says this. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates a far better covenant with God based on better promises. Now, the covenant that they're referring to in Hebrews is the covenant of Moses. We're going to cover that. We're going to see that. But I think it's really important to understand that in all of this talk about covenant that we realize we have a far better covenant covenant and the temptation and it's based on better promises and the temptation of people and scripture will bear this out as we look at covenants we're going to look at the old testament workings with god and we're going to see how we have a tendency to go back into this place where we're living under old testament covenant and we don't realize that we have been transformed and we are seated in heavenly realms with christ and we're going to see how the old covenants demonstrate the goodness of god and god fulfills those still but how he ultimately fulfills them in christ with us because we're in christ as well and that, like every time we're tempted to go back to an old covenant, we have to realize we have a far better covenant. It's new and it's better. Now, some of us are, are kind of like leery, right? If you had a car, how many of you have a car that you used to own and you wish you still had that car and you wished it was brand new and operating that way? Because the old ones were made better. Like you get these newfangled things and he's like, these things are garbage, right? I don't want something shiny and new. I want something reliable and good. But the truth is this, when God rolls out a new model of covenant, it really is better because it's new. You can trust him to do that. So understand this, covenant life is living under the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ. We have been transferred, but God always gave human beings a choice. Adam and Eve had a choice. They had one rule, one rule to follow. God has given us a choice. Will we make him the Lord of our lives? Will we live under his authority? God's authority is good for us. When Satan came and tempted Adam and Eve, he said, is God really that good? Does he really know what he's talking about? He said, in fact, 
he knows, God, Satan accused God and said he knows that if you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. Is God really good? He questioned God's goodness. But the truth is this, living under God's authority is the best. Because Satan has lost his authority. Now, some of us would say, okay, wait a minute. The devil still is pretty powerful, but that's, there's a difference between power and authority. There's a difference between power and authority. Does Satan have power? Yes, he has power. There, there are places where he is, his kingdom is seemingly winning. But he doesn't have authority. The only authority that he has is when we give it to him. Through sin and through denying the word of God. Denying what the cross of Christ has done. That's why redemptive answers are so powerful. That's why they're necessary. Because, because if, if we were going on our own righteousness, if we were going on punishment, if we were trying to make sure that like, everything was taken care of under, on our own standards, we would lose all of our power and authority. But when we stand in his righteousness, when we stand in what he has done for us, we stand in the authority of God, and the power of Satan is diminished and gone. But he's at war with the seed of, Ab- of, of Adam still because he wants to remove God's plan from the earth. And what's God's plan in the earth? It's you and me living full of the Spirit, being the church that's filled with his presence, everywhere with all of himself, re- seeing the earth redeemed, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus does through us. So we're most free under God's authority. We're absolutely most free. I don't know about you, but sometimes when we come to Jesus, we think it's about a list of rules. Well, if I just do this, 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 and this right, God will be happy with me. You can hear a message about this and think, I need to follow the rules. But the truth is this, the greatest freedom in our lives comes when we follow him. We've chosen to make him our authority in our lives. And here's the truth. Seed grows best in an environment of his authority. Yes. Seed grows best in an environment where he's the boss. How many of you have ever had a garden? And there's other authorities, like little rabbits and weeds and whatever other animal wants to come in and take over the garden. But when you put protection over it, like Adam was called to do, when you subjugate the earth, like Adam was called to do, both in the natural and in the supernatural, the seed grows. God has designed you and I to grow. And we grow best under the authority of God. So how do we respond to this if the worship team would come? How do we respond to the covenant of authority that he had with Adam and Eve? It's actually really quite simple because Jesus has done all the work. We don't live under an Old Testament rule where we've got all these regulations that we have to keep. We're going to see those were just a foreshadow of what God would do for us in Jesus. It's really quite simple to live under the authority of Jesus. 
The first thing we do is we get transferred, like Scripture says, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light by receiving God's free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. By confessing him as Lord and Savior, the power of sin in our lives is broken. And I don't know if there's anybody in here that has never done that yet, but I want to take an opportunity to do that. It's just that important. It might not be world-changing for you, but it's world-changing for whoever makes that decision. And if you've made that decision, it should be life-changing. Because you live under a different kingdom. So if you just take a minute, just would you bow your heads with me? Because I want to make sure that we give everybody an opportunity to respond without distraction. If you're here this morning and you've never surrendered your life to the Lord, you've never said, you know what? Like, maybe you've even said, God, I want your salvation, but there's this point where he, where he is the Lord of your life. You're saying, I don't live for myself anymore, I live for you. If you're here this morning and that's you, you want to say, God, I want to make you Lord of my life. You've never done it before. Maybe you've been around Christianity and church for a while, but you're like, God, I've never made you my Lord. you want to make him your Lord this morning, you want to affirm that place in his life, you want to come under the authority of heaven, you want to receive what he has done to deal with sin, you want to be transferred like he's already made a way from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, Would you just raise your hand, I want, to, I want to see so I can pray with you. And in fact, what you're doing is you're confessing him, and there's power in that confession, Jesus said, if you won't confess me before others, I won't confess you before my Father because there was really no transfer. It's not a guilty thing. It's not a manipulation thing. It's just a reality thing. If you want to say, God, you are the Lord of my life, then just raise your hand. Love to pray with you. Then let's do this because I'll assume that those who haven't raised their hands have made him Lord of their lives. So, how many of you know sometimes we need salvation even after we've been saved? We need a practical, real deliverance from our sin. It's happened, but there's still effects of it in our lives. So if you're here this morning and you may have areas of your life where he's not the Lord, and don't just, like, don't just stop at the religious stuff. Like, hey, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with girls who do, like, you know, you got the big ones covered. So you're like, I'm all right. But maybe there's another place in your life. Maybe somewhere in your mind, your will, your emotions. Maybe you give yourself an excuse to be angry. Or you give yourself an excuse to have a, a little bit of lust here because it's not really like that bad. Maybe you walk in unforgiveness. You're like, I, I, can, be, I can be unforgiving because that person really did do something horrible to me. Maybe there's some, some, some areas of greed. You're like, well, I give 10%. I actually give more than 10%, so I can't be greedy. But there's still some areas where you're like, but God, that stuff, don't ask me for that. 
This is not a message to guilt anybody into anything. It's a message to bring us into the freedom that comes to grow and be used by God as we live under his authority, but we can't have places in our lives where he's not in authority. So let me ask you this. Would you be bold enough, as believers, as people who have received his gift of salvation, would you be bold enough to say, to, to say this morning, to say the same thing as? We, we say to people who are getting saved, hey, would you stand up? Would you confess the Lord? Would you confess the Lord's lordship in your life? I'm not going to ask you to stand up and shout the area that you have problems with. I don't know what it is. But if there's an area in your life that is not under the lordship of Jesus Christ, could we take this moment to say the same thing as, repent, and say, yes, God, I want you to be the Lord of my life, even in that area or areas. If you have that this morning and there's an area where you want to say, Lord, you, you are the Lord. Jesus, you are the Lord. You are the boss. You're the authority. I'm coming under your authority in that area. I am receiving the covenant that you made with human beings to walk in your authority. And in, to do that, I am coming under your authority. If you have anything large, small, whatever, would you stand right now and say the same thing as God? To say, God, you are Lord all the way. I won't hold back. Thank you, Jesus. God, we thank you that you lead us with your kindness and your mercy, that you transferred us and you've seated us with Christ so that you can point to every future generation and said, see what I did? God, we don't stand to try harder. We don't stand to look good or look bad or, or to just do something religiously. Lord, we stand this morning because we realize you have given us the authority to be free. You've given us the invitation to live under your authority and to watch as your kingdom comes and your will is done, not just around us, but in us and through us. And we say yes to you this morning. We say yes to your kingdom rule in the name of Jesus. Make your presence known.